Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, and welcome. Starting out with a bit of technical difficulties today, always fun, especially when uh, all you have to do is unplug and replug in a few things. But before you get there, you try like 50 other things to make it work because you're like, oh, it couldn't possibly be that simple to just unplug and replug everything. But then it is. Anyway, other than the technical difficulties, I am highly caffeinated. And if you like that, I hope you are too. I, on the other hand, am not usually a caffeine queen. I don't handle caffeine very well. I drink coffee every once in a while because I do like it. But then I am like, oh God, why does it feel like my heart is going to explode? And then I'm like, oh yeah, I had coffee this morning. I do wish that I was a person that could handle caffeine a little bit better. I had a stronger tolerance to caffeine, if you will. But also I do feel good about not having a caffeine headache when I don't drink coffee because I have experienced those and I can say with complete confidence that those are ass. So I'll take what I can get, I suppose. But anyway, I did realize the last two episodes, I forgot to update you guys that Alex is fine. (laughs) I uh, had an episode recently where I was like, oh yeah, Alex is in the emergency room. He might have appendicitis. And then I just never said anything about it ever again. Um, I'm assuming you all know that he's fine because he's been on the past two episodes. But um, just to confirm, he's good. He's he's all good. A couple of you have been asking me. So I just wanted to put that one out there. He's uh, appendicitis free. He came home all set. It was just a late night at the ER, which is never fun. But I'll take that over surgery, you know? Um, also... It was pointed out to me in the episode where we talked about Ava Wisnerska, the paraglider who went to the stratosphere. Um, We talked about how she didn't have a backup parachute, but I have now learned that she did have a backup parachute, but that wouldn't have done much considering she was in a storm cloud, which makes sense. So that's good. So anyway, with all of that out of the way, why don't we start talking about the story for this week? Because... It's quite a big one. It's a pretty major game of cat and mouse for quite a long time. Not a long time meaning years, but months, which is never fun for the police and for people involved. But anyway, why don't we just jump right in? On March 31st, 2011, it was a warm spring night in the nightclub district in lower downtown Denver. Locals call this area Lodo. 19-year-old Kenya Monhe was traveling to Lodo to have a girls' night out with some of her friends. Janet Gomez, one of Kenya's closest friends who was going to be there that night, said Kenya was very kind, outgoing, and overall a happy person. She loved having fun. The girls had no trouble getting into the club since they used their fake IDs and charmed the bouncers as they usually did, because all of them were under the age of 21, most of them being 19. As many groups of girls do, they had an unspoken rule that you always stick together, go to the club together, and leave together. But that night, things unfortunately didn't go as planned. The girls had planned to meet at a club called Lavish, but when the group got there, Kenya wasn't there. 
Kenya had gotten a ride downtown with two girls she didn't know very well. And although her plan was to meet Janet and her other friends at Lavish, she never made it. And when Kenya never showed up, Janet texted and called her a few times, but didn't get a response from her. What she didn't know was that Kenya couldn't get into the club. The bouncers hadn't believed the girls' fake IDs at Lavish and wouldn't let them in, so they decided they would hit another club nearby. The only issue was Kenya never told anyone they weren't going into Lavish or where they were going instead. Janet sent Kenya one more message at about 11.30 p.m., but still she received no response. So Janet and her other friends decided they would continue partying without Kenya and assumed she was just with another group of friends. And she was for most of the night. When the bars closed, they headed home without Kenya since they hadn't heard from her all night. Janet at that point wasn't too concerned because although Kenya loved to party, she was considered the responsible friend. Janet figured Kenya was having a good time, and she would call her and tell her all about it in the morning, since Kenya always called her the next morning to talk about their nights. Kenya was reliable and ambitious. She worked extremely hard, and it showed, because only seven years earlier, Kenya didn't even really speak English. Not only did she not speak English very well, but she didn't really know anyone other than her mother, Maria. Just seven years prior, Kenya had migrated from Honduras, and her mother had just a few years before her. When Kenya made it to Colorado to be with her mother, they were both elated to be reunited. Her mother Maria had married a man named Tony Lee and had two kids with him. So when Kenya joined, they had three children. Their family had a very smooth transition and meshed together well. Kenya was very quick to call her mother's husband she had never met before her father. In fact, it was one of the first things she said to him, and she was absolutely thrilled to have a younger sister. Kimberly, Kenya's younger sister, also loved Kenya. She was the older sister she always dreamed of. The two were extremely close, talking every day, most of the time texting and calling throughout the day. And Kenya was also very independent. After high school, she moved out of her parents' house to make it on her own. And like I said, she worked very hard to succeed. By that point, she had directed student productions, graduated from one of Colorado's top high schools, and was considering careers in criminology or TV production. She also did a good job at balancing all of that with her social life, because she loved having fun with her friends. And who doesn't? You gotta work hard and you gotta play hard. And Kenya definitely knew how to do both. The morning after Kenya went missing, Janet practically dove for her phone when she heard it ring, hoping it was Kenya, but it was just another friend asking if she had seen Kenya. This was even more alarming because Janet had believed Kenya was most likely with that friend. Kenya's family was also beginning to worry. Kim, her younger sister, didn't receive a call from her, but she did get a call from Kenya's boyfriend who was asking if she had heard from her. Kim told him she hadn't heard from Kenya and asked what was going on. He told her that Kenya hadn't come home last night, and the girls she was with don't know where she is either. He then told her Kenya was missing, and she needed to have her parents call the police to file a missing persons report. This was very shocking information, but Kim immediately called her mother and father to share this news with them. When Tony Lee, Kenya's father, got the news, he immediately went into high alert. After hanging up with Kim, he began calling all of Kenya's friends to try to track her down, or if nothing else, get some kind of lead as to where she could have gone. 
As Tony tried to talk to her friends to try to figure out what had happened, her friends weren't very forthcoming with him because they had been bar hopping and they were all only 19 years old. So they didn't want to tell him what they had been doing to keep themselves from getting into trouble. Which must have been extremely frustrating because at this point, he's not trying to get them in trouble, he's just trying to find his daughter and make sure she's safe and alive. But these were kids he was dealing with and they didn't really see that. And that's when Tony called the police. But there was a problem. Kenya was 19 years old, which made her legally an adult. And in Colorado, the law prohibits any actions to be taken or warrants to be filed before the end of a mandatory 72-hour waiting period. And that really sucks because, yes, she's legally an adult, but she's still technically a teenager. And this family is adamant that this is so unlike her and nobody has heard from her. It's so clearly distressing and urgent that I feel like there should be exceptions that are made for these sort of things. I guess these rules are in place for certain reasons, but also aren't the first 48 hours like the most important time when you're dealing with a missing person? It just seems kind of backwards to me. Anyway, when Tony learned that he had to wait 72 hours before the police would do anything for him, he was absolutely pissed, and rightfully so, because that was not good enough for him. He needed to know where his daughter was, and he felt like something was clearly wrong because this was not something she did. Once it had been 12 hours since Kenya's disappearance, Tony Lee took it upon himself to investigate, since the police were no help. He finally pieced together that Kenya hadn't been with her usual friends that night. She had actually been with two girls she barely knew. He found out that she had been seen at Club 24K, where she had left her phone, ID, and purse with the girls that she hardly knew. And this was a huge red flag for Tony because Kenya never went anywhere without her phone and her purse. I mean, what 19-year-old girl goes anywhere without their phone? The girls Kenya was with dropped her belongings off at her parents' house and told them that she had been dancing with some guy until around 1 a.m., but it was around that time that they lost track of her, and when the bar closed at around 2 a.m. and they couldn't find her, they left with her things, assuming that she would get home on her own. And that one's tough because as young women, you're taught to always stick together and to look out for each other. And I'm sure these girls wanted to do that. It seems like they were trying to do that. But at a certain point, Kenya was gone and there wasn't really anything they could do about it because, like I said, they had her phone so they couldn't get a hold of her even if they wanted to. So short of them staying at the club all night long, they couldn't do anything. And that wouldn't have helped because she clearly didn't come back to the club. So although it sucks, it's absolutely not their fault. Since Tony had Kenya's phone, he went through her messages and found out that so many of Kenya's friends had been trying to contact her throughout that night, but she hadn't been responding at all. She had stopped responding to text messages somewhere around 7 p.m., but she continued getting messages throughout that night and the next day from people who were trying to find out where she was. But then, the night after Tony had been given Kenya's phone, a message from a guy named Travis popped up. And the message said, Hey, this is Travis, the guy who gave you a ride last night. White creepy van, smiley face. Did you get your car home okay? And this message just about jumped off the screen at Tony. Because, I mean, in the message, this person is saying, I'm the guy with the white creepy van who gave you a ride home last night. Like... How many red flags can you set off? 
Tony, of course, tried calling this number, but this Travis person wouldn't respond. He called Travis somewhere around 20 to 25 times over the next 24 hours, leaving messages for him every single time. It got to the point where Tony wasn't even calling any of Kenya's friends anymore. He was only calling Travis because he felt like this person had to be the last person to have seen her. And that brings us to April 2nd, 2011, 48 hours since Kenya's disappearance. The next day, the phone finally rang at about 8 p.m. That was the first time Kenya's father, Tony, had heard from Travis Forbes. Travis told Tony his version of what happened that night. Travis had seen Kenya. He asked her if she needed any help because she seemed like she was really out of it, so Kenya got into Travis's van. He then told Tony after he picked her up, she asked him to stop at a nearby gas station. There, she saw a man smoking a cigarette in the distance, and she got out of Travis's car to go see the man. Travis then explained to Tony that he left Kenya there with the stranger because the stranger said that he would drive Kenya home. That according to him, was the last time he had seen her. After telling Tony that story, the two had gotten off the phone with each other, and Tony felt like that was the most fantastic story he had ever heard, meaning unbelievable. Not one word of what Travis had told him made any sense to Tony. And again, the red flags just continued to pile up. So Tony called the police once again, only to be told they couldn't do anything for him. Because by that time, it had only been 48 hours since her disappearance, and as we know, they needed a 72-hour grace period for whatever reason. And of course, Tony started to boil inside, because even if he was sure Travis was lying about what happened that night, there wasn't much he could do since the police weren't going to help him. But he decided he would risk his own life if it meant he may have a chance at saving his daughter's. Tony called Travis back and told him he had some more questions he wanted to ask him. He told Travis to tell him again where he last saw Kenya. Travis told Tony, I'll tell you what, why don't you meet me there? So Tony told him that he was on his way. But he wasn't going there unarmed. So Tony grabbed a 9mm pistol and packed it in his waistband before he told his wife he was going to meet with Travis. Maria practically got on her knees and begged Tony not to go, since there was a very good chance he could be getting himself into a very dangerous situation. But there wasn't going to be any convincing Tony otherwise. The police weren't doing anything, and his daughter was missing, so he was going. And Maria knew that, which is when she took it upon herself to call the police and tell them what was about to happen, and that they better do something about it. And good on Maria! Because put a little fire under the police's ass. I mean, also good on Tony, I think, because what parent wouldn't want to do something? But also, it is dangerous, that's for sure. And yet, at the same time, I understand. I mean, I am certainly not a parent. I don't know what it feels like to have a child and to love something that much. I mean, you're told by every parent, I feel like, that you don't know what love is until you experience having your own child. Um, but I can imagine that with a love that strong, you would do just about anything, even if it meant putting your life in harm's way. So since Maria told police what was about to happen and that her husband was basically going to confront her daughter's suspected kidnapper, question mark, with a gun, officers were quickly dispatched there. 
When Tony arrived at the gas station, he did leave his pistol in the glove compartment and started walking toward Travis. So he wasn't going into this confrontation guns ablazing. He just had it there as a precaution. But before he could even speak to Travis, the police pulled up and stopped him in his tracks. Since there hadn't been an investigation launched yet, the police were completely unaware of the entire situation. So they allowed Tony to speak with Travis in front of the officers, which is when he retold his story word for word. He even started crying, saying things like, I promise I took care of her. I wish there was something else I could have done. I feel responsible. He almost seemed sincere. And although his story was strange, it was consistent. So Tony, for a moment, thought, maybe this guy is telling the truth, and some stranger at the gas station is to blame. That was until Tony extended his hand for a handshake. He said when he shook Travis's hand, it felt as if there was an earthquake happening under his feet. It was all in his head, but he could feel it. When he looked at Travis, he knew he was shaking the hand of the last person who saw Kenya alive. Tony was convinced that his daughter hadn't survived that night. After leaving the gas station, Tony tried to go home, but he couldn't face his family just yet. He knew they were still so hopeful, but to him, Kenya was gone, and that destroyed him. But he didn't want to take that hope away from his family. So instead of going home, he went to Walmart. That way he could actually release his emotions. He felt like he had to maintain being the rock in his family, but he also needed to break down, which is completely understandable and a very healthy thing to do, to just go and be by yourself and release your emotions. I truly cannot imagine the heartbreak that that man was feeling. And I think there's also a lot to say about him not wanting to take that hope away from his family, because this is still just two days after Kenya's disappearance, but this is going to go on for a long time. And he didn't know that, of course, but throughout this entire ordeal, he let his family have hope. And some might think he should have shared his thoughts and feelings and, you know, grieved with his family, but... Others would think, let them continue to hold on to whatever they had. It's a tough call, but it's the call he made. He wanted to protect his family in whatever way he could. By April 3rd, 2011, Kenya's case was finally assigned to a detective, and her disappearance hit the news. Posters were also put up all over downtown Denver. Nash Grule, Denver's police veteran detective who specialized in missing persons cases, was the lead on her case and he sent out the full force of his department. Everyone was involved. He sent detectives out looking for video, canvassing the area, interviewing people, but most of all, they began their investigation by looking into Travis Forbes, since he seemed like a really good lead. Travis Forbes was 31 years old and had a rap sheet for theft and drugs, but now he owned a small business in Denver, baking and delivering gluten-free granola bars. He was renting a space at a local bakery owned by a woman named Monica Poole. According to her, Travis was energetic and friendly, and she thought his business idea was really great since no one was really doing that in their area at the time. But Travis wasn't very good at the business side of things. He could bake, but he would miss deliveries and deadlines. Travis had told Monica about his encounter with Kenya, and that now she was missing, which she thought was odd enough. But then the next day, her bakery was crawling with police. They looked around and took photos and videos, but ultimately found nothing. 
After bringing Travis in for questioning, his story remained the same, and he even gave an alibi for after he dropped Kenya off with the stranger. He said he was with his girlfriend, and she corroborated his story, so they had to let him go. But still, Detective Grulet thought Travis was manipulative, and there was something definitely off about him. They had gotten a search warrant for Travis's white van, which is when they discovered that it reeked of bleach. They didn't find any evidence, however, the smell was so overwhelming, they noted that it would be like if you sprayed so much bleach that it was like dripping down from the ceiling. That's how much was in the back of his van. And as someone who used to clean pools for one summer of my life, that is a very overwhelming smell. Especially in such a small place. Oh god, I hate that smell. So the overwhelming smell of bleach was one thing, but they also found under Travis's van had been some weeds and dirt and dust, like he had been off the road somewhere. But other than that, it was scrubbed clean. Which seems like someone who wants to hide something. Because why would you be scrubbing your van down with so much bleach if you didn't have something to hide? It's just an odd thing to do. It does seem a bit incriminating, but you can't arrest someone just because they clean their van with bleach. It makes them look guilty, but it doesn't prove they're guilty. They obtained Travis's phone records to see where he had actually been around the time of Kenya's disappearance, and they saw that he had made and received several phone calls from a rural area around 40 miles away called Keensburg. Police sent multiple officers to that area to search fields, ponds, and canvas the area, but there was nothing. But around that time was when another clue surfaced. Detective Grulé had received a call from Monica from the bakery to report some odd behavior from Travis. She had seen Travis acting very weird on her CCTV. Normally, she wouldn't have checked the CCTV, but recently someone had been stealing money from the cash register, and she suspected it was someone who worked there. When she went to check it, she had found that the recorder had been unplugged. So she plugged it back in and wound it back to see who unplugged the security system because, again, pretty incriminating stuff. And it would record you all the way up to you unplugging it, so not the best move. Uh, But so she watched as, of course, Travis walked into the office after everyone had left with his long rubber cleaning gloves and he unplugged the tape recorder, which was definitely odd. She also wound the tapes back to find that the day before he unplugged the security system, Travis had stored one of his coolers inside the bakery freezer, which was something he had never done before. He brought this cooler inside, however the cooler had been taped shut with black duct tape, and then he put it in the freezer. And this was during working hours, so there were other employees at the bakery. Travis's boss also noticed that after Travis put the cooler in the bakery's freezer, he was constantly looming around the freezer door, and whenever another employee would go into the freezer, Travis would walk in after them. This guy is not very smart. It all makes him look incredibly guilty. So Grulé went to the bakery to see if the cooler was still there, but when he got there, it had of course been cleared out. However, he sent a whole team to search the surrounding area for anything. Police found nothing in the bakery, however, out back they found a barrel where things had been freshly burned. But nothing came out of the barrel either, since it had no DNA or fingerprints on it. Again, it just looked weird. A few days later, more footage popped up, but this time it was of Kenya. 
It was from a security camera in an apartment complex near the club she had last been seen at. It showed Kenya in the lobby with an entirely different man. But she hadn't stayed long because just a few minutes later, she was caught on a surveillance camera unsteadily walking through the lobby of a nearby hotel. DA Carrie Lombardi felt like it was clear based on Kenya's behavior that she was heavily intoxicated that night. But according to her family, that was not like Kenya at all. She went out dancing with her friends often, but barely ever drank. And she definitely wouldn't leave her phone, wallet, and keys behind and leave with some random guy she doesn't know, especially because she had a boyfriend. To her family, it was clear that Kenya had been drugged that night. And honestly, it wouldn't be that big of a shock to me either, because it unfortunately happens all the time. It can be quite scary to be a lady out here. You have to be so aware of your surroundings, and even when you are, it's just something can happen so quickly and you don't even know it. It's also terrifying because that stuff kicks in really fast. And if Kenya wasn't with friends that she knew very well, they may not have realized that she wasn't drinking heavily and maybe they thought that her acting really drunk was normal. Grule tracked down the man from the footage who admitted to dancing with Kenya and showing her his loft, but she left right away. And the video confirmed it, so he was cleared which only left two possible suspects, the unknown gas station man or Travis Forbes. And around two weeks after Kenya's disappearance, Travis made a TV appearance. The details surrounding the investigation had been leaked to the news and panic had washed over Denver. And since Travis was the main person of interest in the case, the last thing the police expected him to do was to try and clear his name on live television. Not only did he claim he was innocent, but he claimed Kenya's disappearance was her own fault. Kenya's family, who was at home when this was happening, couldn't believe what they were seeing. All they could do was sit there and watch as this man talked to a reporter live for almost 10 minutes. The reporter asked him point blank, did you kill Kenya? Did you have anything to do with her disappearance? Did you sexually assault her? And with each answer, Detective Grule and Tony felt like Travis was lying. They said they could tell from his demeanor and his body language that he was lying. Something was off. According to Grule, he said no with his words, but at the same time was nodding yes. Which is a pretty big indicator. That's like a pretty big body language sign that the person is not being truthful. And I do always find body language to be so interesting. Sometimes I'll watch those body language experts on YouTube, and there are so many little indicators that people do without even realizing it. So to not give some kind of tell with your body language, you would have to know about all these body language signals and be very consciously trying not to do them. And even still, it might be very difficult to have a completely neutral situation. But like I said, Travis blamed Kenya in this. Which was insane, because she was still missing. And if he was truly innocent, why would he be blaming the missing girl for her disappearance? He said, quote, everyone has their own choices, and she chose to walk off with this guy, and I can't blame myself for that. And then he covered his face like he was going to cry and said, God, I'm sorry, this has been a really emotional time for me. And just to put the cherry on top of this shit cake, Travis, who knew every minor detail about what happened that night to, you know, clear his good name, forgot one major thing while he was being interviewed. He asked the reporter, what was her name? And the reporter said, Kenya. I'm sorry, was that supposed to make you look more innocent? 
because it did the complete opposite. I bet he was just trying to be like, oh, she was so insignificant in my night that I don't even remember her name. I don't even know this girl's name. I couldn't possibly be responsible for her disappearance. And yet it made him look like a complete liar because he had been so consistent with every single minor detail as if they were like rehearsed to the police, to Tony, to, you know, whoever he was telling his story to. Every single little detail was there. And then he was like, what was her name? Yeah, that's not giving what you think it's giving. And Tony was fuming. He wanted to confront Travis again after the stunt he just pulled, but Tony never got a chance to face Travis ever again, and honestly, it's probably for the best. After that, Detective Grulet called Travis back to the station for a lie detector test, but they had no idea where Travis was. After this interview, he kind of vanished, and they didn't know whether he was in hiding in Denver or he had gone somewhere else out of the state or even out of the country. And unfortunately, there wasn't much they could do at that point. And then two weeks later, detectives got a call from the police department in Austin, Texas. It turned out Travis had borrowed a car from an old girlfriend in Denver and then never returned it. So she went to the police and filed a report, which usually doesn't go anywhere. But a police officer in Texas decided to run a plate on a car he happened to notice. And when he did that, it was reported stolen by Travis Forbes. So they got him. That's incredibly lucky. What a crazy turn of events. When does that ever happen? I can't believe that one. They believe Travis was attempting to flee to Mexico by passing through Austin, Texas, but thankfully they stopped him by this crazy turn of events. Grulet took a flight and stopped him in his tracks with another search warrant, this time for Travis's DNA, which allowed him to extradite Travis back to Colorado. And by that point, the questioning between Grulet and Travis became almost friendly, for lack of a better word. Travis would call Detective Grulet Nash, his first name, and answer his questions for hours. But still, they had no evidence on him. And even though he was back in Colorado, they couldn't hold him. And even worse, Travis's friend dropped the charges about him stealing her car, so they couldn't hold him on that either. Detective Grulet talked to this friend of Travis's so many times, and she was adamant that Travis had nothing to do with Kenya's disappearance, that he would never hurt anyone, that this whole thing was a misunderstanding, and there was no convincing her otherwise. So they couldn't do anything about it. So since Travis was free once again, they kept surveillance on him because at that point he was their only person of interest. And they found that he once again went to that small town of Keensburg for an unknown reason. So again, they searched the area, but came up with nothing. Travis then decided he would move back to his hometown of Fort Collins, which is just north of Denver, to live with his grandparents. Fort Collins was a college town full of young women who liked to party, so the police were definitely worried. They let the PD in that area know to keep an eye out for him since he was still a person of interest in their case and he potentially could be a murderer and very dangerous. But at that point, he was kind of keeping a low profile and it had been months, so they had to pull their surveillance and leave it up to the Fort Collins police. Three months after Kenya's disappearance on 4th of July, Lydia Tillman was enjoying the fireworks show organized by the city. 
Lydia, who was 30 years old at the time, was a wine company executive. She had recently given up an opportunity to advance her career in Spain to stay in her hometown of Fort Collins to take care of her father, who had recently been diagnosed with cancer and was critically ill. So she's just a very good, kind person. After the fireworks, Lydia had been walking home by herself when a stranger followed her without her knowledge. He pushed her into her home, and what followed was a brutal attack, rape, and attempted murder. After the attack was over, Lydia was convinced she was going to die. Her attacker drenched her body with bleach, set the apartment on fire, and left the building. Somehow, although she was mostly unconscious, she came to enough to jump out of the second-story window and fell onto the concrete below. She was in excruciating pain, but she knew that she was saving her life. Despite the late hour, one of Lydia's neighbors noticed the fire and did what they could to help. They, of course, called 911, but they also kicked her door in and screamed for anybody in the apartment to see if there was anybody there. Soon enough, all emergency services were on the scene. First responders found Lydia in the backyard on the ground in terrible shape. She had been beaten severely and didn't have any clothes on. But somehow she was alert enough that she stood up and ran into the back of the ambulance. It was a wonder that she was even alive at that point, let alone running into the ambulance in the state that she was in. But she was just in so much shock, and there must have been so much adrenaline pumping through her that she was able to. Once at the hospital, Lydia suffered a massive stroke because of her injuries, one that made it so she couldn't move, speak, think, eat, or breathe, according to her. Her injuries had so bad, they were similar to those of someone who had been in a high-speed car accident. Doctors were floored that she was even still alive. Lydia's sister, Esther Tillman, was the first to arrive at the hospital and said that Lydia was unrecognizable. Esther couldn't believe she was looking at her sister. Her eye sockets, jaw, wrists, and ribs had been broken. She looked like an entirely different person. And on top of that, she had to be put into a medically induced coma because of the stroke. So Lydia wasn't able to be questioned. Jacqueline Shackley, who was the detective assigned to the case, had little to go on since Lydia was out of commission, and since the attacker had done a real number on the crime scene with bleach. But that's when she remembered that the Denver police had warned her about a potential murderer on the loose in Fort Collins. She felt like it possibly could have been a long shot, but she decided she would follow her instincts and call the detectives in Denver to let them know what happened. And she laid out exactly what happened. She told them there had been a young woman who was attacked, the house reeked of bleach, and was on fire. Detective Grulet on the other end was silent, until he said, Oh my god, this is him. Shackley then sent a forensic team to examine Lydia at the hospital. They didn't have very high hopes, since she had been drenched in bleach herself, however they did manage to find something on her. They found unknown DNA underneath her fingernails, which meant that Lydia had put up a fight. Which is incredible. Lydia at the time was still in the medically induced coma, and they had no idea how extensive the damage from her stroke had been, but her family sat with her and would talk to her. They would tell her that she was doing great, that she was healing, and all she needed to do was just rest and heal. They played classical music for her and would talk to each other in the room with her so she knew they were there, which honestly choked me up when I heard that the first time because that is a very lovely family. 
There wasn't anything they could do, and they weren't even sure that she could hear them or what was going to happen. But even if there was a chance that she could hear them, they were going to make themselves known and let her know that she was going to be okay. Her family was extremely worried that the attack on Lydia wasn't over because they had no idea who had done this. And even though she had no enemies and was a lovely person, they were afraid that someone would come and finish the job. They didn't know that Travis was the prime suspect in both Lydia and Kenya's cases, and the similarities between the two were terrifying. The biggest one being the bleach. His ex-girlfriends even told police Travis would obsessively clean his apartment with bleach. And both Kenya and Lydia were good-looking young women who had dark hair. So those were similarities as well. At that point, they couldn't link Travis to the crime just yet because they had to send the DNA underneath Lydia's fingernails for testing. And they had to wait a full week before these test results would come back. Detective Shackley said it's actually a very long process. It's not like on the TV shows where you can do it in just 40 minutes. And she said the week that she waited was actually pretty quick. She was hoping that it would be a quick process, but she didn't know what was going to happen. In the meantime, they were terrified that Travis would either strike again or try to flee the area. So they sent another undercover surveillance team out. As they watched him, they saw that Travis was out and being very rowdy on a Friday night and had began following another young girl down the street. They watched as he started talking her up, and the two started walking together. And they knew they had to put a stop to that. So without revealing their surveillance team, an officer came up to Travis and asked him his name. And Travis told them his name was Travis Kennedy. But after that, they had to let him keep going. But the good news was he used a fake name. And that is pretty fantastic, because after they let him go... He ended up following another young woman who was walking alone. And at that point, the police were like, okay, this guy is far too dangerous to keep on the street. So they were able to arrest him for false reporting since he gave a fake name earlier in the night, which is amazing. But oh my God, this man was just out literally on the prowl, which I guess, of course he was. He's a monster. And that's, I guess, what monsters do, question mark. But can you find something better to do? Like, be a normal person. Get a hobby, not a terrible violent one. But thankfully, now they had him in custody, which was obviously good. But they needed the results from the DNA test because if they didn't get it back fast, he would easily get out on bail for something like that. And he was given a bond and was about to bond out at like 10.30 that Monday night. But as his release was being processed... Detective Shackley finally got her highly anticipated call. The DNA found under Lydia's fingernails was a match for Travis Forbes. And they got this news truly in the nick of time. Like he was about to be put back out on the street, but they got him. Detective Shackley immediately called Detective Grulay and let him know that they did it. Travis had been charged and he was in jail and was not getting out. After that, Shackley also informed Tony and his family, which of course validated everything Tony had felt after that handshake the first night he had met Travis. Still, even with this news, although validating, all he wanted to know was what happened to Kenya and where she was, which is when Tony told detectives to make a deal with Travis. He said he didn't care what the deal was. They could take it down to manslaughter if they had to. He just wanted Travis to talk. Detective Shackley visited Travis in jail, 
but unsurprisingly, he wasn't cooperating at all. He told Shackley that he wasn't going to talk to her and she needed to get out of there. But hearing that, Detective Grulé knew that Travis had always talked to him for whatever reason, so he felt like it was his turn to try, and maybe he would have more luck. So Grulé traveled to Fort Collins to face Travis once again. Right from the jump, Grulé asked Travis what he wanted, because all he wanted was to find out what happened to Kenya for her family. And surprisingly, Travis told Grulé, I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you where the body is, as long as I go to prison without being labeled a sex offender and they don't give me the death penalty. Which was completely unexpected. And Detective Grulé told Travis he thought he was full of shit, that he would back out of that agreement. He thought Travis was spineless and it was all about him and he wasn't going to follow through. But Travis said he would. Grulé was so stunned at that outcome that when he left the jail that day, he had to play the recording back in his car to make sure he heard Travis right. This was incredible news, but it was still just Travis's word. It's not actually legal yet. They still had to cross the T's and dot the I's. But Grulé went away for the weekend with his wife to unwind from all of this, which I think is well-deserved. But it only lasted so long because he got a call that Travis had pulled out of the deal which I'm sure immediately ended all hope of having a relaxing weekend for him. So that sucks. But when Grulé got back on Monday, Travis had apparently rethought his choice, and it was going through. That day, Travis sealed the deal with the district attorney and agreed to tell them where Kenya's body was. In September of 2011, he brought them out to Keensburg, which is where he kept going all those times, and they kept searching and found nothing. On the way, the detectives who had been working on the case kept Travis talking about whatever they could to keep him cooperative because they were so worried he would back out at the last second. As they got closer to where they were going, Travis got quieter and quieter until they pulled up to their destination and then he was silent. His whole demeanor changed as they got out of the car and out of nowhere, he let out a blood-curdling scream. They were not expecting that at all. And it definitely freaked him out. I would be freaked out. But he managed to put himself together and took them to a site next to a grove of trees where he pointed out where he buried Kenya's body. The process was very slow, but after a while, they did manage to find Kenya's body. District Attorney Carrie Lombardi called Kenya's father, Tony, to let him know that they had found his daughter. And the family was devastated. They still, up to that point, had been holding out hope but it was finally all over, which is of course incredibly sad. But in some way, at least they got the answer and they don't have to wonder what happened to her like so many people do who go through something like this. It is absolutely unimaginable what this family went through, but at least now they had their answer. On their way back to Denver, Travis asked Grulé if he was happy since he found Kenya's body. Like he was pleased with what he had done, like he did such a good job. But he told Travis, I have some questions I need answered, and then I'll be happy. He needed the story of what happened that night, and most importantly, he needed a confession. I mean, he did point out where Kenya's body was, which I'm sure would hold up in court as a confession, but they wanted a recorded confession just in case. After five long months, Travis confessed to Kenya's murder, telling them that she passed out, which is when he had sex with her body. When she woke up, she confronted him and began hitting him, 
which led to Travis strangling Kenya to death in the back of his van. That's when he put her body in the cooler, taped it shut, and put it in the freezer in the bakery, which, as we know, was caught on camera. He took all her clothes off, burnt everything, poured bleach on her, and cleaned everything up and down with bleach, put her back in the van, and took her to Keensburg, where he buried her. During that interview, he also confessed to the assault and rape of Lydia Tillman. Before the end of the interview, Travis got up and apparently approached Grulay and said, you just wouldn't give up. And it's true. Grulay took this one personally, and he wasn't going to let Travis get away with this. Lydia Tillman was coming home from the rehab hospital she had been recovering in. By that point, she had woken up from her medically induced coma and was on her journey of recovery, which was going to be long and slow. But at the time she was coming home from rehab, she still couldn't speak due to the stroke. However, she was walking. One of her doctors called it some kind of miracle. Lydia, only two days after being discharged from the hospital, wrote a victim impact statement to be read during Travis's court hearing. She said it took her about an hour to write it and a lot of courage to get up there with her dad, who had to read it since she was non-speaking at the time since the stroke. Her statement said, quote, You caused me no harm. My spirit, my soul, my mind remain untouched. May you find peace in this life. Travis Forbes, I forgive you for what you did to me. There wasn't a dry eye in that courtroom, including the judge. Lydia forgiving him was freeing for her. She didn't want to live in hatred, and that was her way of doing it. Detective Grulay believes she is a remarkable person to have endured what she did, and to him she is a superhero, and I agree. There is a lot of fight in that woman, and to be able to forgive someone after something so brutal is not an easy thing. Not everyone could do that. She is an incredibly strong person. Travis was sentenced to life in prison, which at this point feels unimportant, but it is a detail. Travis was put away, and rightfully so. That man is a monster, and he deserves to rot. But at the court hearing, Lydia had met Kenya's family, and Kim said that when she hugged Lydia, it felt like she was hugging her sister. They had an immediate connection, and although Kenya's family was devastated, they were so grateful that Lydia had survived, and they were so proud of her. Kenya's mother even gave Lydia a ring that Kenya always wore. Kenya's family devotes their time to spreading awareness and warnings and helping others, and they started the Kenya Monet Foundation which exists to provide women and children in Colorado with resources, education, and funding to engage in safe, healthy, and productive behaviors and activities in the community. In addition, the Kenya Monet Foundation will provide families of victims of violent crime and families of missing victims with emotional, physical, and financial support they need, which is very beautiful. That family is so strong to take something so painful and so heartbreaking and then turn around and help others in need. It's really beautiful and very admirable. Lydia Tillman worked extremely hard to recover and speak. She said the most difficult thing to do in the recovery process has by far been relearning how to speak, but her doctors think Lydia may be able to make a full recovery, which is incredible. Lydia came a really long way, even just in two years since the attack. She started working part-time, taking yoga classes, traveling, driving, and living independently. 
She said, it's good to be working again, but at times it's exhausting and frustrating to be juggling brain injuries and work. She has undergone speech therapy and assisted the Arvada, Colorado Police Department, helping them teach self-defense classes to women. Hell yeah. She talks to them about staying calm in the face of danger and having no fear. Once again, I say, hell yeah. That is incredible. Not that we didn't know this already, but Lydia Tillman is a badass. And just to end the story off, if you want to support the Kenya Monet Foundation, I will leave a link to that in the episode description. But that is the story of Kenya Monet and Lydia Tillman. Whew, gotta take a breather after that one. That is really something. I am very glad that that monster was put away for life. And my heart goes out to the Monet family for their heartbreaking loss. It is so awful. She was so young and such a beautiful person, it seemed. But it's also amazing that they that they started the Kenya Monet Foundation to help others in similar situations to what they went through. And once again, Lydia Tillman is an inspiration. She really worked hard to recover and is still in her recovery process, but has gone leaps and bounds to get to where she is. And it's really amazing. So I wish her nothing but the best. I'm sure we all do. But I think that is where I will leave it. Why don't we have a bit of a palate cleanser? What is my good thing? My good thing is that our new apartment is really starting to feel quite homey. It's coming together and it's feeling good. That and we're going to get to do a little tailgating this weekend, which hasn't happened in a very long time. So we're going to get together with some old friends, do a little tailgating for some college football, which is fun. I don't care at all about the actual game itself. It's more of a social thing for me. I like to get together with my friends, maybe play a couple games and eat a hamburger, maybe a brat. And that's the extent of my tailgating experience. But I'm looking forward to it. I like the camaraderie. So yeah, those two things are good for me this week. And I hope you guys are doing well as well. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to listen to a bunch of bonus episodes, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to them and you would like to share it with us and possibly hear it on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.